you can see the mix of nationalities here. Hello, and welcome to the 30,000 Hours podcast, where we'll be discussing current events with experts in child rights, technology, and education. I'm Monica Bolger, a child rights researcher. Today is March 12, 2020. There are school closures in a few states, including Washington and Massachusetts. Starting next week, governors in Ohio, Kentucky, and Maryland have announced school closures, and other states, including Florida and Texas, have reported preparing in case of closures due to the coronavirus. Additionally, universities in Utah, Colorado, California, and Massachusetts are moving classes online. Last year, a Federal Reserve survey found that 40% of American adults would not be able to cover a $400 emergency with cash, savings, or credit. Many families in the U.S. are living with limited reserves, and unexpected expenses present a material hardship. I live in California in a town that was hard hit by the Thomas Fire in 2017. In speaking with teachers during those school closures, they said that some students had asked if they could hang out at their teachers' homes, even if it meant sitting around outside, because they had nowhere else to go. With this in mind, when I first heard of K-12 schools and universities potentially closing and moving to virtual instruction, I immediately wanted to speak with Professor Vicki Katz. She has been outspoken through her research and on Twitter about the need to consider the realities many children and families in the U.S. face. Her insights, particularly her recommendations for schools to address student and family needs, are important for administrators and our government to consider so that as we face this pandemic, we do our best to support families rather than creating additional hardships. Today I'm joined by Vicki Katz, Associate Professor at Rutgers School of Communication and Information and co-editor of the Journal of Children and Media. For the past decade, Professor Katz has studied inequities in children's internet access in learning and home environments. Thank you so much for joining us, Vicki. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, let's start with what's probably top of mind for everyone. Uh, what equity issues should public schools be considering as they determine options for school closures? I think public schools have done a very good job of considering some of the fundamental restrictions that are facing our students uh, as they consider school closures. I think there's been widespread recognition, not just by school leaders, but also by the public, that schools are not just places to learn. They're also places that children eat. And for uh, our children that have unstable housing, they're also places that might be uh, their primary secure haven uh, in the world. And so we've definitely seen and been heartened by, I think, a lot of the discussions around what basic needs um, our K-12 uh, schools and many of our universities are providing for these students beyond the learning environment in a strict sense. Uh, what's been less clear uh, in those discussions is the recognition that those same students who might be food insecure or housing insecure in, are also going to be digitally insecure as schools seem to be considering um, that moves to an online learning environment, a virtual environment will be uh, seamless for families that they are also worrying about uh, not having enough to eat. Uh, that disconnect is, is really what's top of mind for me, not just for our K-12 uh, students, but also for our university students where um, those, dis those discussions of 
digital equity as universities, including mine, are closing, um, at least temporarily. The, those conversations about what our students don't have access to as we switch over to virtual environments has been very concerning for me. Thank you. You raise a lot of important points there about um, students who are food insecure may also be digitally insecure and this assumption that the transition is going to be seamless. In your research, you find that young people have vastly different digital access and may be underconnected in a few ways. Can you talk about this? Absolutely. So in, in the last number of years, I've done studies that range from uh, district level uh, analyses that involve interviewing uh, parents and children in diverse low-income families, immigrant, native-born, families of different racial and ethnic backgrounds about their digital access and their challenges. But also, um, I led the first national survey of low-income families uh, around raising school-age children around their technology access and their challenges. And what we found is that most of the time when families are asked about their um, digital access, we ask them if they have an internet connection, yes or no, and if they have a device that connects to the internet, yes or no. And families may well respond yes to both of those questions and still face really serious challenges when it comes to uh, being online. And that's what we refer to as being underconnected is the questions you should be asking after those yes or no questions, which are things like, has your internet access been cut off in the last 12 months because you couldn't afford to pay for it? If you're smartphone dependent for your internet access, have you hit the cap on your data plan before the end of the month, at least once in the last year? Uh, are you sharing uh, internet connecting devices with too many people in the family to be able to have the time on it that you need? And does that device work slowly and is it in reasonable work and or is it in reasonable working condition and the answer to those questions for a lot of families are much more complicated and i will add to that the answer uh, to those questions for college students who we usually presume have somehow transcended these issues are often quite divisive as well even the students in my own classes about one in three uh, say that they're, uh, they've hit the caps on their uh, smartphone data plans in the last year and had a break in access. I think the data plan issue is such an important one and, and not something that has been adequately addressed in these discussions of moving online. Uh, in, our own, in my own research recently for UNICEF, we spoke with refugee children um, in East Asia and we found the same thing, that, that they may answer yes to having a smartphone and yes to spending time each day online. But once you ask these more, um, th these once you dig deeper just that one level and ask about data plans, then they start talking about um, how advertising actually, like the, the heavy, the data intensive ads actually impedes their use of, of some uh, programs apps, um, access to different websites. So I think it's really important, and I'm so glad you're raising that. Um, along those lines, uh, my next question was, who will have the hardest time if universities close, as universities close, actually? Who's going to have the hardest time as universities close? I think that these sudden uh, closures and disjoints, disjoints that are happening in, in students' lives are obviously the burdens are going to be borne by the students who are least capable of bearing them. Uh, the burdens are going to be placed on students.
students whose families don't have space for them or whose families are homeless. Uh, I have uh, students in that camp myself. Um, students who depend on work study for which you have to financially qualify for jobs on campus and go to many of our lower income students are not going to be able to work during this time. Some universities have pledged to pay them anyway, even though they're, they're not on campus like Berea College, um, but many have not. Um, and that money doesn't just put food in, in these students' mouths. It often is helping their families pay their bills. Um, for many students, food insecurity is going to become a much bigger issue with food and dining halls closed. Um, but on, a digital, on the digital side, uh, it's imperative, whether we're talking about K-12 or colleges, that we consider what kids are going to need to be successful suddenly in virtual environments. And I've been thinking of this as the ABCD of switching over to to uh, virtual learning in these extraordinary times. Uh, and it's based very much on, on the research I've done over the last decade. The first thing they're gonna need, it, the A, is assistance. Uh, schools and universities should be putting money into knowledgeable staff being on call for students having trouble with various platforms that are unfamiliar to them or more basic connectivity issues so that they know exactly who they can call and who can help them because the evidence is clear that the children who are least likely to have an adult in their home who can troubleshoot these kinds of problems with them are the they are the ones whose parents have a high school diploma or less so more limited education and they are the ones who live in the lowest income households and the ones who uh, whose parents are not primary english speakers so primarily immigrants so obviously those categories overlap, but we know that the kids that need the most help are the ones who are least likely to have it at home. So the A is assistance. B is broadband connectivity. And for so many families who depend on Wi-Fi in community settings, uh, it's probably going to be insufficient for uh, conducting schoolwork online and listening to lectures, and especially if they're live streamed. Uh, but also if there are quarantines of any kind, those community locations are not gonna be available to students. So universities and high schools and elementary schools should be sending home hotspots um, to enable students to have mobile uh, broadband access. And if that's not available, universities especially should be committing to pay for the increased costs that students are going to be incurring unexpectedly for broadband connectivity if they don't have it at home or if they're going to need to increase it in order to complete their schoolwork because these are exactly the kinds of shocks, economic shocks, that are the difference between our students graduating from college and dropping out. Sometimes it's as little as $500 uh, between graduating and not. And we, we need to make sure that, the, that they're as protected from those shocks as they can be. So that's the BC is the broadband connectivity and D is devices. We should be sending every kid who needs one home with a functioning laptop because they can't do this work on smartphones and we can't presume that the uh, devices they have at home are up to the task of a fully virtual day of learning. Thank you. And I, I love these recommendations actually um, because we really need right now concrete guidance in how to best support 
um, children in K-12 and university students. I'm wondering, um, thank you for, I, I was going to ask about key takeaways for schools and, and I think you, thank you so much for addressing these in a very like tangible format with the ABCD. Um, what about, I, I, I don't think that the responsibility should be on the students to, to figure this out. I really do think it should be a, at the district level or at the university level. But for these students um, who aren't having their needs met, do you have any advice for um, how they might, especially the university students, reach out um, to their schools? And then also, um, I mean, the, I, I, I don't even know really how to phrase this question because when we when we think about um, children and families in K-12, as you said, often, often um, the families with the least amount of resources are the ones, you know, expected to carry these burdens. And so what can families do who find themselves in these situations too? My answer to that question is that families should not be the ones who are bearing this burden. If we are exactly, going to switch yeah. to virtual environments on a dime, the responsibility for ensuring that students can thrive in those environments is on their educators. So okay. this is something that should be top of mind for university administrators and for faculty. And if administrators are not recognizing the depth and breadth of the digital inequality on campus, then it is up to individual faculty to advocate for their students. Um, and I think the same is true at K-12. If administrators are not taking this as centrally and seriously as they should be, it's up to the teachers, it's up to the principals. This is not something that families that are already stressed by the limitations in their resources should be having to deal with. And we should be treating this with the same level of seriousness that we are treating, making sure that children do not become food insecure when they're not on campus. Uh, if we are making plans to ensure that the children who depend on schools for breakfast and lunch and sometimes dinner still have the food accessible to them, the same absolutely should be true for the devices they're going to need to not fall behind in terms of their educations. We already know that lower income students experience what's called a summer slide, where yes. at the end of the spring until the beginning of the fall, they can lose up to half a year of learning. We are now in an extraordinary position where they are at risk of losing the spring as well. We have to treat that like an emergency. And anybody who's educating children at any level should be the ones who are taking responsibility for this. This is not on families. This is on us to create plans that really work. Because otherwise, we shouldn't even pretend that we are switching over to virtual environments. We should simply shut the schools. Thank you so much, Vicki. This is incredibly essential information at exactly a time when we need it most. So thank you so much for your time. Truly my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And here are some final thoughts for our listeners about the importance of this moment. In his recent book, Dignity, Chris Arnotti shares findings from cross-country trips around the U.S. where he spoke with housing insecure families. Arnotti asserts that education is the most promising pathway to moving out of poverty. Everything I've read and studied shows that education is a promise and a gateway and something that needs to be carefully protected in this uncertain time. 
Since 2006, U.S. education efforts have focused on reducing high school dropout rates and improving college completion levels. We do not want scenarios where students lose important opportunities because their learning has been disrupted. And we do not want to increase the dropout rates in high schools because of difficulties presented by a shift to online or a lack of support from schools in their community. And that's why speaking with Vicki today was so important to hear her insights and recommendations for improving the outreach to parents and support, both from schools and from our government. Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of a series that will address key challenges of a mass movement of instruction online. We will be speaking also with world-renowned education researchers about best strategies for creating a supportive learning environment. So tune in soon here. Thank you and stay healthy.